before. A group of kids were excited about a music festival out in the middle of the desert, and so they were piling into cars and buses and vans and heading out for a, a fun day with friends. And still other religiously devout people were observing the final day of, of a feast weekend, the Feast of, of, Sukkot, of Sukkot, or we would know it better as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, as the Bible talked about it. They were, they were people that were, well, a lot like all of us, people divided by politics, people distracted by pleasure, people that were complacent in their prosperity. But in a moment everything in their world would change. Without warning, rockets began to fly over and began to be intercepted by their missile defense system. Explosions would be heard near the border, and before they knew it, in many of the border towns, insurgents were running over the border. At the end of the day, of those young people that had gathered at the outdoor music festival, 260-plus of them would lie dead on the ground, and many more were wounded, while hundreds of people had been taken hostage back in to the Gaza Strip. For Israel, it was October the 8th started off like any other day had for a very long time. But that day would end very, very differently with a realization that no longer were they at a place of peace, but they were now a country at war. It's so easy for us to sometimes forget that we are people that are spiritually a part of a war. I don't know about you, but I kind of like that idea of a lazy river, right? Some of you guys probably have been to one of those before, but you're in the lazy river and you're kind of just coasting along and, and we like those ideas. We like to think, hey, I'm a part of a, of a lazy river and life just rolls like it always has. But it doesn't. We've been going through the book of Ephesians and this morning we draw this series to a close. As the Apostle Paul draws this book to a close, and we know that he begins as a philosopher in many ways, and he talks about the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the love of God and how that should impact and change how we live and look at, look at him. And then Paul kind of moves into a, kind of moves into an artistic sort of slash teacher role where he begins to paint for us this image of what a child of God looks like. What does it look like to be a follower of Christ living in this world? He shows us those attributes, and he he finishes with probably some of the most intimate relationships that we have, those between a husband and wife, and between parents and children, and between employers and employees. And he said, in every one of those areas, and in all areas of life, we are to look like Jesus. Now Paul switches to his third and final final metaphor in the book of Ephesians, briefly, but with, with a great deal of power and earnestness. He moves not from from being an artist or a teacher to becoming a military commander, preparing an army to be ready for the next assignment. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in the sixth chapter. We're going to finish up in verse number 10. So if you have your Bibles, flip over there or click over there with me this morning. And let's read as Paul makes this final transition and how Paul directs the church in Ephesus, and by extension, those of us who are Christians today, to equip ourselves for the responsibilities that lie ahead. One of my favorite writers in the American or American genre of writers is a guy named Ernest Hemingway. Some of you guys may have heard of him before. He's a kind of a guy who writes about life experiences and about the outdoors. And he wrote 
you might have had to read The Man in the Sea when you were a kid in school, maybe. I don't know if any of you guys know many Hemingway books. Some of them are a little, little risque, probably. But there's this one that, he's, that was written about two Cubans that were learning or that were fishing. And one of them was an experienced fisherman, and the other was learning how to fish. And, and eventually, the, the more learned fishermen began to kind of show the tactics and techniques of catching fish. And the younger fisherman steps back, and he says, oh, I get it now. It's all a trick. It's all a trick. Everything in life is a trick. And the older fisherman says, no, senor. (laughs) This is combat. Life is combat. We would like to think that it's not. I would like to think it's not. But the reality is that that is more true than it is false. Every morning we find ourselves combating things. We combat life itself, the Murphy's Law part of life, right? Where if something will go wrong, it will go wrong. And so we find the broken coffee pot, we, the car that won't start, the, the, the check that didn't get deposited or came out too soon of our bank account. We fight our own personal desires and attitudes, many of which we know aren't really appropriate and we don't really want those to be the things that come out of our, out of our mouth or, or the way we react to people, but yet we find ourselves struggling with those things. We're doing combat within. Sometimes we find ourselves combating a broken and dark world around us. The reality is, is if we don't accept that life is combat, we will find ourselves ill-equipped to deal with the real challenges that we deal with every day. God never said that life would be a lazy river. In a lazy river, you just jump into a tube and you kind of just go around a circle, don't you? Kind of follow the course. There's no danger. There's no, there's no obstacles, really. You just kind of bounce off of things and other people and there's no friction in any of it. It's designed to be a recreational and relaxing activity but it's not real. Several years ago, I decided it would be a great idea to take a whole bunch of students when we were out in Colorado down to the Platte River for real live river tubing. Now, I did a lot of stupid things when I was younger. I'll be the first to admit this. Um, this is one of them. So we, we, we went around and collected a whole bunch of inner tubes. Some of you guys were probably on this trip, right? We aired them all up in the shop at the NYR campgrounds, loaded them on the loose truck, like, 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 like Latin American style, like really, really tall ropes holding them on kind of stuff, right? And we, we made our way down these steep passages down to the Platte River Valley. Now, if you've never been there, let me just say that this is some of the most beautiful country that you will ever experience. Huge huge boulders, beautiful uh, wooded hillsides or mountainsides on either side. And in the bottom of this, there is a typically placid, quick-moving, shallow mountain stream of icy cold water. As we arrived at the base of the Platte River, however, I noticed that the water was much higher than I had normally seen it. It was moving. And we drove up river and we offloaded the kids there and it was in a pretty good spot. But I had been watching the whole way up. There was, and I knew this is going to be a lot of fun. Now for me, it was. But since I've been a kid, I've been canoeing in, in Whitewater Rapids. I've tubed quite a little bit in my life. I've had good friends that drug me behind their boats in tubes. I know about drowning. Um, But I had a bunch of students with me that were not equipped. And there were a few things that happened that day that could have, save for the grace of God, turned out very, 
badly. Because when we're not equipped for the real deal, the real deal will get us. Church family, just let me tell you this morning, we are not in the lazy river. Satan would like you to think you're in a lazy river, that nothing can go wrong and everything will go right. Just relax and flow with it. You can't fight the river, but you had better be prepared for the rapids. Satan would like to keep us all distracted and discouraged. He would like to not get us in the river to start with, if that will work. Or if we're in the river, that we're looking at the scenery and the things around us and not watching out for the dangerous obstacles that are ahead of us. But God said, I I want you to be in that river. I want you to be living life. I want you to be going places. But this is real. And I want you to be prepared. So let's read how Paul decides to equip the church in Ephesus, and those of us by extension here today in the 10th verse of Ephesians 6. He says, finally, and many of you are rejoicing with this, both Paul and Jason have finally decided to close this book in this sermon series. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. If you've been following us, you know that this is a big switch. Paul makes a hard break here, and he begins to talk about not what's going on in this world, not what Jesus has done in his life in this world, not the grace, mercy, and love of God that's been extended to those of us who are living in this world, but he is now pulling back the curtain and showing us what's happening on the other side of what we call life. And he begins where I think we need to begin this morning, pointing out that we need to be strong in the Lord and in His might. Please don't mistake me this morning. None of these armaments that we're putting on are ours. It's not Jason's breastplate of righteousness or Jason's shoes fit with the readiness of the gospel. This is the armor of God. This is his armor. This is what he has prepared and given to us so that we might go into the danger of the world, conduct the business of sharing the gospel without losing our relationship with him. We are called to be soldiers bearing the light and the truth in a world full of darkness. In order to do so, we have to make certain that we are equipped and ready to do so. And so just know with me, first of all, that these are not our strengths, our abilities, or our powers. So often when we're confronted with things that are broken or not right in the world, we immediately start to scheme about how we can fix it or how we should address it or what we should do about it. Paul said, I want you guys to put on the armor of God. I want you to stand in his might. And you might notice that Paul mentions on several occasions this concept of standing. When we talk about a standing army, we simply mean that the army is prepared. The army is ready to move. Maybe the soldiers aren't just standing there, but in their minds, they are ready in a moment's notice to take action if directed to do so. And I really think that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to get across to the Christians in Ephesus and those of us here today. We are called to be a people of God who are ready to do what God calls us to do. It can be so easy for us to try to plan everything on our own. And I 
can't help but think about this moment in the life of David. David was a man that was mighty in war, a man that had a powerful ability to lead people, a guy that was, was very decisive. And when he knew that God was leading, he would follow that lead no matter where it went. As a kid, he would take on a giant, right? And then lead a, a whole battle or a whole group of people in a battle against an invading army. As a very young man, he would be sent out on, on missions that would, anyone else would consider to be suicide missions, and he would return extremely victorious. This was not a man that was afraid of danger. But David and his men, many of whom we know in Scripture as his mighty men, had left their home in Ziklag, and they had left behind there their families and their children and the comforts of this world, and they had gone out to do business in the dark and broken world beyond. And as they return, the book of 2 Samuel tells us what they encountered. 1 Samuel, excuse me. In 1 Samuel 30, in verse 6, it says that when David and his men reached Ziklag, which was their home city, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters taken captive. This, I think, would probably be for most men one of the most uh, nightmare-type situations. You come home and you find your, the doors of your house blown open, the house has been burned, and everyone that you love and care about has been taken away. They haven't been killed, but even almost worse, they are held as captives of an enemy nation, and there's no telling what their intention is with those people. And David and his men are broken. It says in verse 4, So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Now, guys, you should recognize that these are, these are macho men. These are not the kind of guys that just break down at any turn in the road. These are the kind of guys that when they're moseying along and happen to notice there's a lion that slid off the path into a ditch, I'm like, man, I'll slide down in there and take care of this, this vicious creature, right? Slides down into a pit and takes on a lion. Why? Just because. These are the kind of guys that when they're abandoned on the field of battle and everyone else runs in fear, they just stand firm in the middle of the field and keep going at it, and God gives these guys victories. These are not weak people, but every one of us in this room this morning will at some point come up against some obstacle that will break us if we try to manage it alone. David and his men have found just that obstacle. They are broken. They have cried so many tears. They have nothing more to weep. The book of Samuel tells us that David's two wives have been captured, Ananim and Jezreel, and Abig- of Jezreel, excuse me, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. But David is a leader. And David doesn't have the luxury of grieving his own losses in this case, because as it tells us in verse 6, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in his spirit because his sons and his daughters. When things go wrong in the world, people always look for someone to point a finger at. And David happened to be the leader. He had, had, he had set up this city. He had probably told the men, our families are secure here. There's not a problem here. And they return and find out that that is not true. When that happens, the men are ready to take David's life. So what would you do if you lost everything you cared about and the very people that you thought were your closest friends were deciding whether or not they were going to kill you? This is what a man after God's own heart does. Shortest verse, powerful verse, but David found strength in the Lord, his God.
David didn't try to sort this out on his own. If you read the rest of the story, you'll find out that David sought God's wisdom, God's counsel, and followed God's lead on how to deal with this situation. And at the end of the day, they would be successful. But it wasn't because David tried to do it on his own. I think a lot of us in the American church in general, we try to do everything on our own. And Paul's making it very clear as he opens up this passage of Scripture, this is God's power and in God's might that we stand. So how is it that we're able to stand? How is it that we're able to equip ourselves in such a way that we can stand in God's power and God's might? And and Paul tells us this in verse number 12 of Ephesians 6. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Remember, I I told you that word stand is going to show up a lot. Paul wants these people to be equipped and ready. He said, I want you guys to do everything you can. And when you've done everything you can, then this is how you need to be prepared. This is what you need to look like. Stand therefore, having the belt of truth, Uh, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given of the gospel of peace, and in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication." And we're going to move through these very quickly this morning because last year we actually broke each of these down in greater detail. And uh, I'll put a link this week up on Facebook and and on these videos. If you want to check out that sermon series, you can go back and and, and listen to it or listen to the podcast of it. But we talked about each of these. We took one a Sunday and we just broke these down. I'm going to summarize these things. And I want to talk about them not as individual parts, but as, as the whole. How do each of these things kind of work together to equip us to be able to be ready to move when God says, go. Paul keeps repeating this phrase, to put on the full armor of God, to put on this and to put on that. And that's because at the end of the day, God has provided these things for us, but it is our responsibility to make certain that we're using them. And the first of those items that Paul goes to is that thing that we know as the belt of truth. Every Roman soldier had a belt, and from that belt, everything kind of, kind of was held together on his gear. The belt would hold up the, 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 the protection for his legs. The belt would also hold down the breastplate that would be clipped to it. And from that belt, there would be things like canteens and packs, and most importantly, his sword would be secured. That belt was just iconically a symbol of, of military preparedness in the Roman world. And every Roman soldier would have used that each and every day. Everything that he did waited on that. What you might not know is that when Roman soldiers retired, were no longer able to serve in the military, no longer had the, had the age or experience or had been freed and allowed to pursue the, the normal pursuits of life, oftentimes those Roman soldiers would continue to wear that belt because it sent a powerful message to people around them about who they are and what they stood for. It's no accident the Apostle Paul chooses to use that metaphor when he begins to talk about the power of truth. Because we live in a world where truth has been kind of misshapen. And Jesus tells us why in John the 8th chapter. He's not talking directly about Satan, but he's talking to a group of people, religious leaders, in fact. Um, and he compares them to Satan in verse number 44. He said, you are of, the fa- of your father, the devil, which is no no compliment by Jesus. And then he explains to them why. He does not stand in truth 
because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. From the very beginning, guys, we see this pattern out of the behavior of Satan. When God says, here's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you need to leave it alone, and the day that you eat from it, you will die. Bad things will happen. Satan swoops in and has a conversation with Eve and said, Eve, doesn't it look like a nice tree? Wouldn't you like to eat from it? Good things will happen if you eat from that tree. And Eve believes him for a moment. She takes the fruit from that tree, sinners in the world. What's a story we're familiar with? But generation after generation after generation, including myself and you, we fell into the same pattern. Satan tells us, hey, it's better here. This works better. This is a way that life should be lived. You're missing out if you don't participate in this, that, or the other. And we believe it. The problem is, Jesus says, it's all a lie. It doesn't work out better. Eve was not better off after she took the fruit from the tree. We're not better off when we choose to live life by our own standard in our own way. And not only us, but everyone else around us is affected by those decisions as well. If the enemy can get you to believe a lie, he has won a great victory. If the enemy can get you to tell a lie, he has won a war. And Paul knows this. Now, some of us, we don't know what we don't know. And some of us spend a lot of years of our life telling a lie and living a lie because we believed it to be true. And if that's the case, if it was in ignorance, that is a mistake that all of us have made. But now we've had an opportunity to see the truth. Now we have an opportunity to co- contrast and compare God's plan against the plan that Satan has laid out in this world. Now there is a responsibility laid at our feet to embrace and to put on the belt of truth, to look at the world as it is, not as we would have it, trusting that God is working in and through every circumstance to accomplish his purpose and his plan. Jesus lays this out in John the 8th chapter in verse 31 when he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. If you want to know how, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, here's a quick test. Ask yourself, am I living in the truth? Am I, am I looking at the world as it is, not as I would like for it to be? Am I, am I buying my own version of events, or am I opening my eyes and seeing what really is going on in my life and with my attitudes and with my conversation and speech? Am I accepting what's going on in the world around me and recognizing that many, many people around me have simply agreed to believe a lie? It's painful, but we're talking about preparing to make a difference for the kingdom. And we've got to know where we stand if we're going to stand there. And Paul begins and says, hey, put on the belt of truth. Recognize that God is telling you what really is, not what you would want to see. The enemy wants you to believe lies about yourself and believe lies about God. And the world is full of many of those lies. Our job is to step into that battle and demonstrate truth in the content of our character and in the words that we say. Paul continues to kind of move throughout the body, and he talks next about the breastplate of righteousness. And I think we we kind of just naturally recognize that of all the body parts, this is kind of the vital zone, right? This is that section of our body where if things happen, it can cause mortality very, very quickly. 
If you read the, the article in the front of the bulletin today, you, you heard about the guy, that one of the first guys, in fact, that was shot at point-blank range wearing the first bulletproof vests. And, and, uh, and, and they, they cover this part of the body because when you get shot there, if you get shot in the leg or the arm, it can be really bad, it can be painful, you can have a long healing process, and you could bleed out, but you stand a whole lot better chance of survival than if you get shot in this critical zone. If you're a hunter, you know, you know exactly the area on an animal to shoot to inflict the most damage. And armies from the beginning of time have recognized this is a part of the body that must be protected. Paul says that spiritually, that part of our body is protected by the breastplate of righteousness. Now, righteousness is a word that we don't use in common, common language much. What does it mean to be right, righteous, right? And there's really two components to righteousness. The first is the fact that we've been given a righteousness. None of us are naturally righteous people. God is holy, we are not. God is perfect, we are sinful. And God has this dilemma, and so he sends Jesus into the world, and Jesus lives perfect, he lives holy life, he lives, he makes every decision perfectly because Jesus was completely informed in truth. He had no period of ignorance in his life. From a very young age, he knew who he was and why he was in the world. Not only that, but Jesus made the choice to always follow the truth and follow God's plan. But we still had a sin problem. And so after Jesus resurrected into heaven in Acts, the second chapter, there's this neat story where Peter opens up the door to the church and he says that, that we can repent and be baptized, every one of us, for the forgiveness of our sins and we'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And later in the scripture, the Bible talks about how we receive something that the Bible calls an imputed righteousness. It's just a fancy way of saying that God clothes us in Christ. He puts righteousness on it honest. I'm not naturally a righteous person. I want to be a righteous person, but there's a lot of blind spots. There's a lot of ignorance, and there's still a fair amount of rebellion in my heart and probably yours. And so God clothes us in Christ, and when he sees Jason, he sees righteousness. That's the first side of righteousness. But the second part of the discussion about righteousness is our choosing to live in the truth. Because every day we, we have that option, right? If we want to, we can choose to do our own thing and to believe a lie. And sometimes, honestly, if we're honest, it looks a little bit more exciting over there, right? Seems like maybe they, they're enjoying life a little bit more or those things are, are helping us to, to, to engage in life in a more meaningful way. And there's constantly that combat, that battle between our sinful nature and the heart of Christ that dwells within us. Paul outlines this brilliantly in, in Romans, the seventh chapter, if you've never read it, apostle that does an amazing amount of good in the kingdom. And he says, look, I'm a wretched person. I want to do what God wants me to do. But on the other hand, I find myself doing what I want to do. What a wretched person am I? We've got to be willing to first of all, accept God's gift of righteousness, to be clothed in Christ. Secondly, we've got to be willing to every day make a choice to live in the truth. It's not always comfortable. It's certainly not easy. But it's our requirement. God has given us this brilliant breastplate of righteousness to protect the most vital parts of us. But it's useless if we choose to not put it on. It's useless if we, out of arrogance or ignorance, choose to think that we don't need to protect the vital parts of our spiritual heart and life. If Satan can get to your heart, 
he may be able to score a mortal victory. Next, Paul talks about our feet. He talks about feet that are tread or trod with the, with the willingness to share the gospel of peace. So I just shortened it by saying the shoes of the gospel. I don't know how many of you guys have done this re- recently, but the other night I was out, I'd left something in my truck, and I'd already cleaned up, took a shower, and I had on shorts and a, and a t-shirt or something. I'm kind of lounging around the house, and, and Michelle, God bless her, she's a very good housekeeper, but she puts my shoes away all the time, and uh, and I like my shoes to be right by the door. Now, I'm, I'm a grouchy old thing, I, I agree, and I know that Michelle doesn't need to see 50 pairs of my shoes, um, but uh, I go to the door to look for shoes, no shoes, right? So I'm like, hey, it's okay, my truck is just there, and so I run out on my little sidewalk. And then I remembered, oh, I left my truck in front of the shop. This requires me to walk about across about 40 feet of gravel. I made it about 20 feet across the gravel, and I repented of having made that decision. How many of you have walked with bare feet on gravel lately? I mean, you're brave souls right there, but that is painful. I'm out there. (laughs) I don't know if I was making those sounds and faces, but that's what I felt like. And I know I was walking like that, trying to ease my feet, you know, and I get to the truck and I get what I need out of the truck and brushing the gravel off. And then I got to make that trip back across the gravel, back to the sidewalk. And I get to the sidewalk and I scrape the gravel that stuck my feet off. And it was just huge relief. And I just walk with freeness into the house because I'm no longer stepping on stones. Shoes are really, really important if you're going to do anything that requires movement. And in case you've forgotten, right before Jesus left, he said, go into all the world. And make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We are called to not just stand still, but we are called to begin to move. And Paul says those shoes are the gospel. The gospel that brings peace. I don't have to tell you guys, you know as well as I do, that we live in a world today that desperately needs peace. But peace is not going to happen if good people don't go and work toward peace. Matthew, the fifth chapter, and verse number nine. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God is sending us, Christian family, God doesn't want us just to kind of sit in a holy huddle and look out at the world and say, boy, those people are sure lost out there. Those people really need the peace that we have. He said, no, I want you to be equipped and ready so that you can step out of the safety and security of the little fort that we call church. And I want you to go out into the world and I want you to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want your feet to be equipped with the gospel of peace. Because guys, when we realize and we get excited about the gospel, which means the good news, and we realize how big of a deal that has been for us and how big of a difference it can make in other people's lives, it just naturally compels us to move. Even if we're not comfortable in going there, even if we don't feel like we're equipped to handle everything there, we go there because there's something that just has to be done. That's not just some weak calling in your life or some do-good tendency. That's a calling of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the purpose that he has left us here for, to share with the world the gospel of peace. 
And now Paul begins to move to things that we carry with us. These things are not necessarily on us, except for the helmet of salvation that we'll talk about in a moment. But he talks about this thing that is the shield of faith. A Roman soldier is going to use a, a shield typically that would have been wood in the background, covered with a thick coat of of, of leather. And maybe if you were later in the Roman period, you would have some, some fancy metalwork on the outside of that. And, and often before battles, they would soak their shields in barrels of water and rivers or someplace like that. And they did that because there was this very, very good psychological tactic that was used by many armies to kind of catch the attention of the invading army. And that is that their archers would would prepare arrows with rags soaked in some kind of propellant. Um, and as the advancing armies would begin to come on them, um, they couldn't carry these kind of things with them, but the home city could, right? They would sweep these arrows across an already lit flame, and they would light and launch this flaming arrow into the proximity of the advancing armies. Now, you think about this for a little bit. As humans, we're pretty sharp, right? Um, when you see something with a sharp, pointy part on it that's coming at a high speed toward you, you can see it because it's on fire, and it's on fire. There's a very powerful psychological thing that happens, and that's called fear. And fear is a very dangerous thing for a soldier to have. I grew up in a town where people raced cars. And one of my favorite race car drivers was a guy named Doug Wolfgang. What a great name if you're going to race cars, right? And uh, Doug Wolfgang was fearless. He would drive a sprint car around and just almost drive the wheels off that car. And then he got in a really bad wreck where the car caught on fire and they didn't know it for a little bit because it's an alcohol fire. He got burned very badly and he came back that next year. And I I, I said, how many more years are you going to drive, Doug Wolfgang? And he said, I always said that the year, that the time that I got scared would be the last race that I ran. He won that year. The next year, he got in another wreck, and he parked the car, and he never ran it again. Fear changes our behavior. So what the Romans would do is they would soak these shields in, in water, and then they would pull them up, and they would, they would, as they begin to advance, they would have a protection, right? Because of the wood and the leather and the metal, the arrows couldn't break through. Because they were soaked in water, they would just get quenched. And that's what Paul says, that we carry the shield of faith with which to, to quench the fiery darts of our enemy. Satan wants you to believe and fear him. Now, we should definitely respect Satan, Jesus himself, never talked ill of Satan except to share the truth about Satan because Jesus realized Satan is very powerful. But Satan is not God. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And if Satan can get us to pay attention to the fiery arrows, if he can get us to begin to fear moving outside of the zone of safety that we've created for ourselves, he has won a lot of the battle because this belt of truth, this message of righteousness, this gospel good news that people need to hear will never reach their ears because we will never move out to tell them. And that's why Paul says God's given you a shield of faith. The Roman soldiers would hold that shield in front of themselves and they would pretty much be covered from the ground clear above their head. They could advance against any assault. But here's a cool thing. They didn't do this alone. 
A community of faith, guys, is, is really, really important. Sometimes some of us are kind of lone wolves. We're, we're kind of lone dogs in the world. And we, we want to think, hey, you know what? I can just do this on my own. I don't need other people around me. The Romans realized that their strength in numbers. They had fixtures kind of hooked to these shields that they could lock their shield in with the guy both to your left hand and to your right. And so now you have a group of guys moving as a unit together. They have an impenetrable wall, but there's more. The guys that are behind that first line would raise their shields over their heads. They would set those shields on their helmets and on the shields of the guys in front of them. And so effectively, that entire group of soldiers would be one armored block that could move underneath any barrage to engage the enemy in battle. And Paul uses that metaphor to describe our faith. Paul writes to Timothy in this last letter that we know of, and he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear in 1 Timothy 1, 7, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Those three things are really important for us to remember. God did not, does not want us to go into the world fearfully, but he wants us to understand that there is power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the truth that we hold but that this is a battle. We need to practice love. We're not here to kill, steal, and destroy. That's Satan's job. We're here to restore and build up. That's what God does in the world, love and a sound mind. We need to be thinking clearly about the decisions that we are making each and every day. Jesus said this in John 16 and verse 33. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Faith is that thing that sustains us in times of trouble, believing that God is able to deliver on what he has offered is absolutely essential. Guys, I think sometimes we we head out into battle and we think, I got this, right? We think, I've got the armor of Jason. I'm impenetrable. I can handle this. I know stuff. And we leave that shield of faith back home. Look, there is no guilt in having faith because you can't live without it. You have to have something to trust in. Everyone trusts in something. I don't care how much they swear they don't, they do. You would never get in a car and drive. You would never eat a bite of food. You would never put on clothing. You could not exist if you did not have faith. I choose to have faith in the one who made it all and is in control of it all. And I hope you do as well. The fourth thing on that list was the helmet of salvation. A soldier wouldn't think of going into battle without a helmet, and we should not think about engaging the enemy without recognizing that our salvation comes from the Lord. We didn't save ourselves. We did not figure this out on our own. He figured this out for us. And the knowledge that we are secure in God or secure in Christ with God should motivate us to be willing to step out of safety and into the battleground that lies ahead. David wrote this in Psalm 27, verse 1. He said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? David's saying, Hey, look, God is on my side. What am I going to worry about in this world, right? I have, I understand, I know, I have the understanding that God is with me. I will be willing to move and follow his lead. And then Paul finishes with the final bit of armor and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's two things that I think we should notice about this. First of all, 
It is the sword of the Spirit. There is a relationship between the indwelling understanding of the Holy Spirit and the Scripture. Those two things must go together. You can know about the Bible, but God wants us to, to, to experience it. God wants the Spirit to take the Word of God and to apply that, to transform it, to change our lives. And that's absolutely essential that we recognize this. This is not just some academic exercise. This is the Spirit of the living God working through the Word of Scripture. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's why every Sunday as we share Scripture, as we teach, we, we try to apply as much Scripture as we can to the concepts because the Bible tells us the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. This isn't the only time that the Bible is compared to a, a sword. It is the offensive weapon. But the offensiveness of our weapon is not for the same intention that the, the darkest world, dark world around us uses weapons for. In fact, Paul reminds the church in Corinth this in 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, so we're, we're people, right? We're, we're living in the world. We are not waging war according to the flesh. We're waging war, but it's not like the people around us wage war. Because in war, what do we do? We break things, we destroy things, we crush the spirit of those around us. But we are not fighting Satan's war. I think Satan is behind every war, every disturbance, every uprising in the world. God operates differently. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power. And notice what he talks about here, to destroy strongholds. Strongholds in the Bible are are philosophical ideas. They're thought processes that people become trapped in, right? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Our time has come and gone this morning, but I just want to point out that that Paul is writing to another church, but about a very similar situation using very similar language. See, guys, we're not fighting a war that is fleshly war. We're We're not trying to cut people down. We're not trying to destroy people. We're not trying to crush people. We are trying to free them from the worldview and from the philosophies that are holding them as a prisoner to sin. Every day that you and I walk out into a broken world, we see people that are prisoners. They don't want to be there, but they don't know how to get out or they don't know that there is a better option. That's our job. And that's what the word of God equips us to do, to break through the hardness of their heart and sprinkle in the light of Christ. And if that heart is is an honest heart, and if that heart is truly seeking to know what it is that God plans for their life, that that light, that seed will begin to take root and begin to transform and change their lives. Jesus recognized that there was great power in the word of God. In fact, when he's pulled out in the wilderness by the spirit and eventually Satan comes and begins this active testing of Jesus, Jesus responds to Satan's initial temptation. Why don't you turn these stones to bread? Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. I'm sure it was a powerful temptation. Jesus responds to that temptation with these words. It is written... Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus realized what we need to kind of embrace, and that is the words of God are life. Sometimes that's hard for me to get. When reading through the Bible, I'm like, this is really that revolutionary? This is going to change things? Until 
until I see the word of God working on people's lives. Until I, I, I see that word of God begin to take an active role in somebody's life. And all of a sudden, almost overnight sometimes, or certainly through the periods of months and maybe a couple years, that person begins to radically transform. And then I realize, yes, there is power in the word of God. It changes us. When we put on the armor of God, we recognize that we are clothing ourselves with the tools and the defenses that God has given us to accomplish our purpose. Now, Satan, or Jesus would pray in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I think that's a very wise prayer, incidentally. I think every day we should be praying, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. We're not talking here about engaging Satan in battle. We may have to do that. Jesus had to do that. What we are talking about is being able to go out into a lost and broken world and carry with us the message of the gospel, share with others the truth of Scripture, and be able to do that with the confidence that we and those who live in our shadow, our spiritual influence, are doing so safely. That we can go to someone who's lost and broken and share with that person about how Jesus can transform and change their lives and recognize that we are not endangering our own spiritual lives. The Bible says if your brother is caught in the sin, you who are spiritual should we go, go and restore that person gently. But watch yourself, lest you be tempted. We're in a war. These temptations are not just temptations for others. They can become temptations for us as well. And so as we close today, I want to read to you one of what is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's found in the chapter following chapter 7 where Paul says, I'm a wretched person, I'm a broken person. It's found in Romans, the 8th chapter. In verse number 37, it says, No. Paul writes, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we are equipped with the armor, the tools that God has given us, we can begin to move into a lost and broken world with confidence. It's not arrogance or cockiness. That would be if I moved into that world with my power and my strength. But when you're equipped, as Paul instructs us today to be equipped with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes ready with the gospel, the shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, you have not equipped yourself with your devices, but with God's, not with your power, but with his. And we can, with confidence, walk into a broken world and make a difference. So if you're here today and you realize that you need to start that journey with the Lord, you need to have your sins washed away because you want to be covered in the righteousness of Christ that we all need, please don't leave here today without doing so. The baptistry can be filled in a few moments. Those sins can be washed away. You can rise to walk as a new person filled with the Spirit of God. Maybe you're here today and you become one of those people like I have and so many of us have where we just convinced ourselves that life is a lazy river and I'll just kind of bobble through this and bounce off of obstacles and slip through life. You're not going anywhere. You're not really living where God's called you to live because the river, the river has dangers. But you're not there alone. He's right along beside you.
We're, stand, we're going to stand together and we're going to sing. If you have a need this morning, you know that you can come as we do so.